0: Check this out. Illinois has recreational cannabis, right? But what if you want to feel real good without getting high? And how about ordering it online and getting it right to your door? Well, there's this company, Mineral. They do whole plant hemp oil formulations. It's like CBD, but it's more than CBD. Mineral grows the hemp in Colorado. They formulate the product in Colorado, and they create these organic all-plant formulations for anxiety, stress, inflammation, post-at-home workout, and get this, the sleep one. It's fantastic. So what makes them unique is they actually blend these plant components together, things that the body has, like fats and vitamins, that actually increase the absorption and effectiveness. So you actually get to feel the benefit of these formulations, truly the guy who founded the company, Mills is his name. He's coming on the show next week, and you're going to hear his story. He was in Peru. They tried to take out his colon, but he used cannabis oil to recover instead. I know, it sounds trippy, but wait till you hear his story. It's Mineral. It's a beautiful company, beautiful formulations. I love the balance. I love the sleep. It's MineralHealth.co. That's m i n e r a l h e a l t h dot c o. And if you're listening to this podcast, and I know you are, you want to try their formulations, then use code CHICAGO15. That's Chicago spelled out, the number 15. That's C-H-I-C-A-G-O-1-5. You do that, you'll get 15% off your first order. That's 15%. That's only available for listeners of the podcast. So use that code. Thank you, Mineral, and thank yourselves, too, because you're going to love this stuff. Cannabis without the high. That's correct. Every Tuesday on the Ben Jarowski Show, we have a delightful conversation with Maya. Maya, I miss you. Usually the conversation is in the studio. It was always one of the highlights of the week. Every Tuesday, door opens. I go, oh, I love it when our guests come early. And Maya would always come early. So now we're doing this Facebook thing. You look good, Maya. You look like you're healthy and vibrant and hanging in there. You feeling that way?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely feeling that way. All right. You do too, man. I miss you as well.
0: Yeah, it, uh, doing the show from the attic overlooking the alley and the brown line, and uh, life goes on as best we can. All right, uh, plenty to talk about with Maya. Uh, she's been very productive. She may be stuck in her house or an apartment, unable to uh, go to the reader or go to the Sun Times or go to meetings, etc., but you've been cranking out some great articles, Maya. So um, before we get into some of the issues, the larger issues of the day, in terms of how the city of Chicago uh, and the country is dealing with the virus. Let's just talk a little bit about some of these great stories you've knocked out for the reader. Uh, One of my favorites is a a recurring character uh, in the Maya narrative. His name, well, I don't know his real name. You call him Weed Man. Talk about Weed Man a little bit.
1: So, yeah, I decided to check in with Weedman um, amid this pandemic because I'm curious about, you know, how the underground weed delivery business is going. Obviously, um, businesses are closed. Uh, I think a lot of people, even if they were able to go to their dispensaries, uh, might shy away from that right now, might shy away from standing in line, obviously. Um, and so I was curious about, yeah, how things were going. So I did a, a little Q&A with him, and everybody can find that on the Chicago Reader website. Uh, uh, you might remember Weedman from my story last December, uh, which was more of a long profile of him. But so, yeah, I, I just asked him a few questions, and uh, basically he's still out there delivering. Um, he has also instituted some safety protocols for himself and his and his crew, because um, he's got a, a few people that work with him as well. They don't go into people's apartments anymore, um, which sort of used to be his, one of his kind of signature um, things that he did. He liked to go and actually spend some time with his customers and chat and give them a chance to browse through the products that he has, um, you know, while kind of just being in a more relaxing atmosphere. Now he's asking people to um, meet him downstairs in his vehicle and, uh I asked him, you know, I was a little surprised about that because I asked him, you know, is, is he not worried about getting caught uh, more easily that way? And he doesn't seem worried. I mean, Weedman doesn't seem worried ever about much of anything. So <laughs> that's just kind of that's the, the, the kind of a fundamental feature of Weedman. Uh, I don't I don't know why that might be, but <laughs> uh, so he's not too worried. He said that you know, there's so much delivery going on all around that. He sort of feels like he blends in, and anyway, he feels like cops right now are probably trying to avoid contact, just as much as anyone else. Um, there's been a bunch of COVID-19 cases in the Chicago Police Department, so um, I think he's probably right about that. And anyway, they've probably got more important things to deal with than catching a weed delivery guy. Um, so yeah, so his products, he says he sanitizes everything, and uh, he uses gloves and wears a mask. He wears and, a mask. Yeah. Um, Apparently people really stocked up uh, before the uh, the shelter in place order went into effect. So, um, so yeah, he, um, he, he uh, but he, yeah, he's out there.
0: He had a, uh, you had a funny bit in the, in the interview where he compared uh, his product, the stocking up on his product to the stocking up of toilet paper uh, to necessities, yeah. which by the way, the whole toilet paper thing, we're going to get into that later. Cause Maya was interviewed uh, yeah. by someone from the nation, but the whole obsession about stocking up with toilet paper caught me off guard. I have to tell you, Maya, I, I, I just wasn't ready for people to have that particular paranoia. I don't, it's kind of weird. I.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I read something early on in the, um, in, in the kind of pandemic uh, preparation process, where people were saying that the reason toilet paper becomes, um, like toilet paper is large, like packages of toilet paper are large, and so in terms of the number of items that a store might be carrying, the number of like um, packages of toilet paper that might be stocked on shelves, um, there aren't that many to begin with on any given shelf because they're big packages. Mm-hmm. And then when people buy them, it very quickly creates this sensation of emptiness uh, in, on the shelf because the big, they're big bulky items that when you take a bunch of them off the shelf, you very quickly feel that there's not that many of them. You know, it's like imagine a um, a bin of pencils or pens at at Target or Walmart or whatever. And people will take a lot of those before you start to feel like it's getting empty. But it's like the opposite with toilet paper. So because the shelves that carry the toilet paper appear empty much quicker, that then creates the sensation for shoppers that they really need to stock up on this stuff because, you know, apparently they're selling out. So there's kind of like these like visual psychological elements to it that seem to spur people to buy up toilet paper.
0: Wow. We are uh, Pavlov's dogs. We are just totally people driven, totally, totally by impulse. I hadn't, th- I, I hadn't seen that article. That makes a lot of sense. When you see an empty shelf, you panic. Good thing it's not going that way with potato chips, my beloved potato chips. They've not been uh, in great shortage of them. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that that explains the toilet paper phenomenon, which really did catch me off guard. Uh, and I won't go down this road but uh romana hussein who comes on every friday has this whole bit she does she's pretty funny about it about americans and their obsession with toilet paper so if anybody wants to take that deep dive i urge them to check out some of romana's uh past shows
1: yeah Uh, this is why this is why um uh this is the same issue that was brought up in that article nation i wasn't the only one interviewed for um that story uh the journalist did a bunch of interviews with um, immigrants, uh, who had experience with scarcity or war or political turmoil in their countries of origin. And yeah, the kind of, the whole kind of thrust of the article was, uh, was about how immigrants are dealing with the, you know, with, with this particular crisis in the United States. And, um, yeah, it, toilet paper, not, not top of mind for folks uh, right, well, who immigrated from places that have had real scarcity. <laughs>
0: Let, let's since you introduced it, let's talk about it. I'll flip uh, my list of uh, things I want to talk about, and we'll get to uh, the Nation article. You caught me off guard. I saw it when I was—I uh, I forget wh- how I saw it. I was looking for—I uh, was reading your Weedman article. I guess that's how I saw it. And I saw you link a, a Twitter feed, uh, a Twitter link to it, and then I read the article. Uh, so give people—you—I don't know if in, in a show recently you've told people a little bit about. Uh, how you got to this country and your backstory just give uh, fill people in a little bit so they understand why the uh, nation reached out to you
1: yeah so i'm uh, i'm from russia originally and i came to the united States in 1997 um, and uh, so i like lived in russia with my family through most of the 90s and the period of time that you know really there was uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and this kind of very slow, cumbersome process of creating a new state, basically, created—you know—there was a lot of political turmoil. I um, mean, it was a period of all kinds of chaos, um, and in some ways, good and uh, kind of there was a lot of a lot more this democratic kind of activity, free elections, um, you know, a general opening up of of this uh, formerly kind of, you know, closed society that had had a, a very kind of regimented and, and, um, kind of dictatorial political system. But, um, in addition to, and, and so in, in the, in the West, I think a lot of people think about Russia in the nineties as this place of like, of hope and uh, possibility and like kind of forces of liberal democracy winning, um, winning the day. But uh, for a lot of people day to day, there was also, especially in the early 90s, like very intense experiences of scarcity because you have you had a country where, you know, things like con- consumer goods and groceries were all provided by state run enterprises, which all kind of fell apart. The state fell apart in the matter of um, just a few months. And uh, essentially, like scarcity was really intense. So you would go into a grocery store and. You know, here in the United States, the situation now is that you might go to a grocery store and not find the one or two things that you're looking for. Whereas in the Soviet Union, the early 90s, the situation was the inverse. It's like you go to the grocery store and there's like one thing available. And if you want to buy something, it's that one thing. And it was often, I mean, in my family, um, like the, the lore around this is like, well, there were like periods of time where all you could find at the grocery store were meat. So, like, if you wanted to eat something that you bought at the grocery store, the only option was geese. And then, um, (laughs) you know, other times it was, like, cow udders. Like, that was, like, a thing that was, like, legendary in my family. And part of the reason was because my grandmother, who grew up in a village and went through World War II, all of my grandparents went through World War II and experienced scarcity and and, uh, severe food insecurity, as a result of the war. So then when the 90s rolled around, they, their sort of like wartime uh, skills and, and and kind of mentality really kicked in and they were able to kind of hustle and, and figure their way around the, the sort of instability of the early 90s because of their wartime experiences. But um, but yeah, so uh, my grandmother, who, who had prodigious cooking talents and was raised in this kind of rural environment, She knew how to cook the geese. She knew how to cook the cow otters. She knew how to do anything with any kind of meat. So, like, my family was, like, usually fine because my grandmother had all these skills. But a lot of other people, especially people who came from, like, generations of city dwellers, you know, who had no idea what to do with cow otters, um, had had a much harder time when there was really extreme scarcity in that post-Soviet period. So, yeah, I feel like having been raised by these grandparents who were survivors of the war and had this kind of constant scarcity mentality and having gone through that um, scarcity uh, in the early part of my life, I feel like in a way this environment we're in now, like I was sort of always prepped for this. Like like I was sort of, from my earliest childhood memories, revolve around dealing with this kind of environment with like limitations and scarcity.
0: What are some of the uh, recommendations or uh, that you had in The Nation article? I'm trying to think of it offhand. Uh, Some of the advice you gave about how you created, what was it, uh, sanitizers from soap? Am I getting yours right? Am I mixing you up? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, there was, I I had said that people, that that, um, the thing that, my point was that people who, immigrants who have gone through this kind of, these kinds of crises elsewhere in the world tend to, always be stocked on like raw materials that you would need to make a lot of different things. So rather than hand sanitizer, people are focused on making sure they have alcohol, as high percentage of alcohol as possible, you know, in terms of rubbing alcohol at the house. Because if you have that, then you can combine that with um, like I've seen recipes online for like hand sanitizer made with rubbing alcohol and aloe vera gel um, people also do a more basic one be, with hand sanitizer and glycerin. Glycerin is not like a super widely, un, you know, used or maybe not even widely available in the pharmacies, but you can order it online. And that's like a basic pharmacy thing that like, if you have that and the, and the rubbing alcohol, you will be set because all hand sanitizer really is, is rubbing alcohol. And the reason that there's other stuff in it is so that it doesn't burn your hands too much. So you need some kind of softener and either glycerin, which makes, yeah, which is like soft or or aloe vera gel will help with that. So, and as far as toilet paper, you know, like I just remember as a kid, like there were periods of time where there was no toilet paper. And to this day, like toilet paper quality in Russia is like way, it's like nothing like it is here. Like people, like people have like not nice toilet paper and sometimes um, toilet paper is hard to find, but. You always know that if you have newspaper, you'll be fine. <laughs> newspaper, newsprint,
0: yeah.
1: newsprint paper is like actually quite tough in its raw format. And after all of the layers of ink and stuff are applied to it, it becomes sort of uh, thicker. But if you just take some newspaper and kind of smush it around in your hands a little bit, your hands will get dirty, but you'll have something soft enough to cover your needs. <laughs>
0: I tell you what, there's a, always a lot of practical information when we have the Tuesday conversation with Maya. By the way, uh, just yeah. pop, popped in my mind. Uh, I'll move on to the topic that you wrote about and to your riff on haircut gate and uh, other issues of the day. But I, I was thinking of you while you were doing that riff, where you were just uh, reminiscing here. I've been going through my old stories because uh, f- the Tracy Bame. Uh, is setting up this uh, fundraiser for the reader where we uh, have our greatest hits. We talked about this last week. So, you know, I'm really going through these old stories and I'm spending way too much time reading articles that I would never even put in my greatest hits. I just rereading articles from the 90s and stuff. And I came upon this article, these two lefties, a column I did, I forget when. Uh, They were members of the Communist Party here in America. Uh, They were in their 80s when I wrote the story. So I'm sure they've passed on uh, it's been 20, over 20 years since that article came out. But it was remarkable, Maya, to hear them reminisce about this sort of reverence they had for the Soviet Union and how the Soviet Union represented to them when they were uh, young, younger, younger than even you are. Uh, if such a thing is possible. Uh, And they were coming of age during the Depression in the United States, and the Soviet Union represented like this glorified worker state that the United States might emulate uh, to give people protections from the uh, extremism of capitalism. And when I was listening to you talk about you coming of age uh, in the 90s, or being a kid in the nineties in the aftermath of the fall of the Communist State Soviet Union, I just reflected it to them and how their dream just died. You follow what I'm saying? It just didn't work out. Uh and now you know, we're st- well, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, my point is I was just thinking about how here we are, we have another extreme in this country. And I I you know, like this like intolerance that we have toward the notion of, let's say, Medicare for all, uh, a national health care system. I was talking about this earlier in the day. You know, uh, well, Trump has agreed to allow people to um, uh, the, 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 allow the government to pay for people's bills related to COVID-19, but he's uh, opposed to Obamacare. You know, he's opposed to health care for all. Even Joe Biden is afraid to embrace uh, health care for all. He pulls back from it. It's like this country still has this uh, strange aversion to nationwide government-backed programs that would benefit people. So it's like one extreme or another. You know what I'm saying? Communism on one extreme. Yeah. And what we I, have here.
1: I, I guess my... What I would say to that is that like any dream will die if you mismanage its implementation. Like the problem isn't the dream, but how it's managed and implemented. And that's like it, I mean, there's plenty of history with that in in the United States. I mean, look at look at public housing in this country. There's nothing wrong with public housing. There's nothing inherently wrong with government with the government building and maintaining public housing. There's nothing inherently wrong with low-income people living in high-rise apartment buildings. But the way these programs were managed and implemented and the racism that was wrapped up in, in their administration, ma- you know, made them fail and made literally the buildings fell apart because of how badly this stuff was implemented. So you you look around the world, there's plenty of places where there's a different story around government created and managed housing so you know it's not um the problem the problem isn't the dream
0: well put it's how
1: it's how these things are implemented and and so the idea of medicare for all or 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 any other sort of i guess left-wing idea that's out there now you know you can't just point to past what you think are past failures of the same idea and indiscriminately say, well, the problem is the idea. We tried that, and it didn't work. No, You can't. you can't build a house out of matchsticks and then watch it burn down and then say, well, it must be that houses are a bad idea.
0: Uh, well put. And, uh, and by the way, I, sh- I, I did not uh, hold it against uh, these old lefties that they had this dream about the Soviet Union. I kind of admired them in many ways, uh, that they try to stay true to their values up until their 80s and 90s. Uh, anyway, it was an interesting little uh, portal uh, to the past that I went into.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the Soviet Union wasn't all bad. It's not like, it's not, uh, you just have to, it, it was not like a, just a uniformly horrible experience for the people who lived through that. There were plenty of things about it that were that were you know wonderful i mean it's just like what bernie sanders was saying about cuba you know it's like people were freaking out because he was saying that li- literacy achieved under communism in cuba is something to be admired they're like quality of health care achieved there is something to be admired like yeah like it's not it's not all black and white you know i think we should question whether the only way to provide to, to improve society in, in a fundamental way, such as, you know, improvement of education, the quality and accessibility of education, the quality and accessibility of, of healthcare care is the only way that that's achievable um, is through uh, some kind of, uh, you know, dictatorial political system. And I think that, that there's no reason to believe that that's the case. So, you know... The the, the problem isn't
0: communism. I I agree. And one of the great frustrations I had when I thought about the the failure of Bernie to um, win the primaries and be the nominee, I voted for Bernie, everybody knows it, Uh, I've moved on, even I've recognized uh, he's not going to be the nominee, is the way in which the opposition to Bernie effectively used... like just this caricature of the Soviet Union. It's not even a caricature. I mean, the, the worst aspects of the Soviet Union, the worst aspects of Venezuela is a club to pound away at Bernie. I mean, Bernie was never articulated or never championed anything remotely resembling like the communist totalitarian state of the Soviet Union at its worst moments. He never defended anything like Venezuela at its worst moment. And yet that's a caricature, caricature they use uh, to trivialize his message and marginalize his campaign and work against and it. And it was effective, Maya, uh, even though most people running, uh, most Democrats in this country at uh, one level or another uh, embraced the, the concept of national health care. They ran away from Bernie, the person who was championing it, because wow. they, th- they, they felt that these messages that the opposition was sending out would would uh, undercut him, and he would not be able to beat Trump as that. So these,
1: you know, I guess it's the same people who actually, maybe it's the same people who think that it's relevant or interesting, who's cutting Lori Lightfoot's hair.
0: Well, we will.
1: You know, we, I we, just don't. I, we will get to that. I don't even that. know what I. I you know.
0: We, we will get. We'll close with Lori Lightfoot's hair before we get to Lori Lightfoot's hair. Uh, and your riff on that. Talk about your the the third article, well, your second article that you wrote. Uh, you were listened in on a conversations of landlords. And this is relevant because last time you were on the show, you were talking about renters' rights uh, in the, this moment of, uh, of the pandemic when people don't have jobs or may not be able to pay their rent. What are some things you learned by listening? Well, tell folks a little bit about the circumstances surrounding this article that ran, I think it was a couple of days ago. Yeah,
1: so... A few, last week, uh, somebody sent me a recording of a Zoom call between, that was convened by some kind of, um, smaller landlords or an association of smaller landlords around town who are pretty active with kind of representing the interests of small and, and maybe, maybe mid-sized landlords as well. Not not necessarily big corporate interests. So a couple of these groups, the Neighborhood Builders Association or Neighborhood Building Owners Association, and the South Side Community Investors um, Association, hosted this call over Zoom, and there were about 150 people on the call. There were lobbyists there from groups like the Realtors Association and the Chicago Association, um, the uh, Land Apartment Association as well. Those groups tend to represent much bigger much bigger interest uh, and kind of bigger corporate concerns as well. Former Alderman Joe Moore, remember Joe Moore? Yeah. Was, was on the call. Yeah. Uh, what was
0: that all about?
1: I don't know. I should have called him since I still have his cell phone number. So, uh, but that it didn't, you know, I was, I was just reporting on what was discussed on the call. I wasn't about, you know, I wasn't interested in kind of picking on the specific people who were involved, but the call happened on March 26th, and essentially the landlords uh, and, and the folks who were speaking during this call were just discussing how to deal with the impending loss of rent uh, due to the pandemic. Because so many people had lost their jobs, there were talks of, you know, rent strikes popping up around town. Tenants contacting landlords and asking them, you know, telling them that they weren't able to pay their regular rent, and This is going to be much more of an issue come May as well because a lot of people may have still made some money, at least in the first half of March, but so many people don't have savings because they work jobs that are so low-paying and the rent is so expensive that that they're not able to save money um, that I think – we should expect much bigger news on this front and much bigger issues for for landlords intended to like come come May because the shutdown is is now extended to the end of April. But yeah. So in this conversation, it was just, um, it was interesting to hear about where people, where, where the landlord's concerns were. And uh, one of the, obviously there's concerns about the financial hit, there are concerns about staff safety. They talked about how it was, you know, just like everyone else knows, it's now nearly impossible to get masks or gloves or kind of personal, um, protective equipment or, uh, disinfectants and surface cleaners. Those kinds of things are hard to find. So they're dealing with a shortage of that, of those supplies. Um, yeah. And, uh, the thing that sort of really caught my eye was towards the end of the call, there was a lobbyist. At the um, from the Chicagoland uh, from the Chicago Realtors Association who was telling the group that you know they had to be really careful right now and now more than ever really practice compassion towards people because you know if they were too the word he used hard-handed uh, was hard-handed if they were too hard-handed with their tenants you know it might be Leak to the media, there might be a story somewhere about, you know, some jerk landlord or one or two bad apples, as he put it. And that kind of narrative out there about how landlords are behaving in this, in this, during this pandemic could then be the reason why tenant friendly legislation could be passed and, and, and efforts to create more tenant protections could gain steam. If so, So they were concerned about the optics of seeming too harsh on tenants, especially now because they're worried about this being kind of used as a shoehorn for tenant friendly legislation, such as the sort of thing Lori Lightfoot talked about a couple of months ago with her war on poverty, um, you know, announcement that included creating like just cause eviction and, or I guess as you and I discussed, like not exactly just cause eviction, but at least giving people, more time to move if they're being evicted for no reason, that kind of stuff, which is opposed by the landlord lobby or uh, real estate interests. They're they're concerned that those kinds of issues will be more popular and more likely to pass with local politicians if there's stories out there of landlords being harsh on tenants, especially now. So, well, I thought that was interesting. Yeah,
0: I found that interesting as well. What an interesting little take. On the, 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 <laughs> sort of like the practical uh, aspects for having compassion we don't really have to be compassionate toward the people you're renting to but it may be in your best long-term interest if you show a little compassion to people uh you know it may stay yeah, well i mean
1: i don't doubt that some of these guys so i don't doubt that some of these guys are, really are compassionate with their with their with their tenants and, and i mean i've heard stories here and there about landlords even locally you know for giving grants or getting people set up with uh, kind of interest repayment plans on the stuff they owe. Um, I don't doubt that plenty of landlords truly are feeling and sympathizing with their tenants, but I think that probably is concentrated on the m- mom-and-pop operators, kind of end of the spectrum mm-hmm. because big, big companies, big real estate concerns like Pangea they think about all of this as a numbers game. So um, I actually just talked to somebody who's organizing tenants uh, in Pangea buildings on the South side. This person lives like in an apartment that has chronic uh, mice and, and bug infestations that you know, she calls Pangea out to take care of and they spray something and the, the pests never go away. So it's already substandard housing that she's paying more than $700 for a one-bedroom apartment um, in, uh, in, in South Shore. And it's, you know, it's already kind of a tough situation, and now there's been so much job loss among her and her neighbors, and they're trying to organize. But a group of, of tenants trying to reason with a big company like Pangea is, is going to be a very different story compared to someone approaching a little mom-and-pop landlord or somebody who might be living in the, in the building where they also rent an apartment or two?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I don't know how. I mean, it's a, it will be a different world when this pandemic passes, uh, and I, it's hard for me to imagine completely going back to normal, but it would be really upsetting to me, and we'll leave it here before we move on to the next thing, that there will be no lessons learned. So in the issue of uh, rents, you know, so many of our leaders say we want Chicago to be a livable, affordable city for everybody. We don't want the patterns of the last 10, 15 years where so many uh, working class people and poor people, black people uh, were forced out of the city and yet not do anything on the topic. You either believe in it, and you want to do something about it, or you're just giving lip service to it. And the same thing with health care. So I would hope that. Yeah, and actually. Go ahead.
1: One one other thing that the, that the landlords brought up in this, in, in, that came up in this conversation between the landlords that I thought was really interesting, and I didn't have kind of space to put it into the article, but um, people might find it interesting, was that they were saying that according to the sort of like market analysis out there, so there's, so in real estate kind of jargon, there is class A, B, and C properties and kind of by extension class a b and c tenants that you could have so a properties are like you know buildings or units in nice neighborhoods that are easy to find tenants for that are on the high end of the rental scale that have tenants who have you know well-paying jobs and are are never going to have issues paying rent that's class a class b is like sort of a middle tier um, you know, you might buy a property that needs that that's like in a gentrifying neighborhood that's uh, quote unquote improving, or you might um, buy kind of a fixer upper property in a neighborhood that's already got mostly Class A properties. It, so the idea is that Class B properties need need some work, need some investment, but attract pretty stable tenants. And then there's Class C, which is like you know think about like the Pangea type of end of the of the spectrum where it's uh, Properties that re- would require a lot of work to, to really get to, to be um, uh, their best in, in their to be to make them be in their best shape. and they're located in neighborhoods that tend to have a you know a lot more issues with with you know what have you crime there however you want to define a, a quote unquote less desirable neighborhood that's like a class C mm-hmm. property is located in a space like that and. The tenants themselves tend to be more precarious, uh, rely on, um, on income that may be a little, uh, less stable and be, and, and our, and our low, low income tenants. So these landlords were saying, one of these landlords, landlords was explaining that this crisis will affect, will affect class A and B tenants more than the class B tenants that in his estimation based on the kind of market research he did, uh, people with people in class A and B properties are more likely to have jobs that are non-essential, that will be that, that their employers will cut back on and people will be laid off. Whereas people in class C properties are kind of blue collar workers already working in retail, working in healthcare. And, and kind of the lowest rung of health care. And um, he sort of offered these words of reassurance to people that those having properties with, with class B renters uh, might actually come out of this more intact than people um, renting to, to those slightly higher end um, renters because all of this is in the sphere of renters. I mean, there's obviously very wealthy renters, but in general, People transition into ownership once they get into really kind of on the, on the high income scale. But, um, you know, people who might be making like forty fifty thousand dollars 50000 a year in Chicago uh, might be less likely to own their home. And so yeah. those renters, the point is those renters might have the same kind of job, the, the kind of jobs that are most at risk of being lost. Yeah. So some, something professional, but not essential. So, I don't know, after this meeting came out, tenants all over the city, after this meeting happened, tenants all over the city started receiving notices from their landlords explaining that the rent was still due, that they're still, you know, that they're still, that that times are hard for everyone. And some people got notes from their landlords saying, like, Amazon and Walmart are hiring if you need a job, if you lost your job
0: helpful tips from your landlord uh who want to make sure the rent keeps coming yeah all right uh we'll close down with your thoughts on haircut gate uh it uh i mentioned this in passing i talked to maya before we do these segments i say hey, maya is this is what i want to talk about and by the way every thoughts on haircut gate she went on this incredible rift and i i i don't know if you could recreate Recreated. Uh, it was a spontaneous eruption. Haircut gate, of course. Uh, if you haven't been following it, uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, uh, they were uh, had her haircut this weekend. And some I don't know if the um, the haircutter came to Lori's house. It was sort of a private haircut, and uh, the haircutter put it pictures of it on um, uh, her Facebook page, and the word broke that um, this was as actually uh, not social distancing. And uh, Lori was questioned about it at a press conference yesterday. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, there's been a few articles written about it. People have been coming to Lori's uh, defense as well. Uh, your thoughts on haircut gate, Maya?
1: I wish your listeners could see my face right now and then they'll understand all my thoughts on haircut gate without me having to say anything. I mean, I just find it so embarrassing and bleak that there are journalists in the city wasting the precious moments they have speaking face-to-face with these public officials on questions about this goddamn haircut. Like, there are people dying in the city. There are people dying in prison and in jail. There's, As of today, there are 95 people who tested positive for COVID-19 in Stateville penitentiary, okay? That's like 8% of the population at Stateville. A facility that's been on lockdown where people can't even get a bar of soap. At the Cook County Jail, there's 234 positive, uh, you know, confirmed cases of of the disease. It's like 5% of the inmate population. Not to mention dozens and dozens of staff members at, at both within the Illinois Department of Corrections and Cook County. And rather than taking a moment to ask about that, about what the state is doing with the most vulnerable people in their custody, people who may be in jail or prison for shoplifting and might now be looking at a death sentence because of how how these facilities are operated and how bad the, the, the hygienic situation is there. Instead of asking about that, like something that matters, instead of asking questions about how how disproportionately impacted the black community is in Chicago and Cook County by this disease because of the decades of health care disparities, instead of asking about that, they're asking about a fucking haircut. You should be embarrassed to be a journalist if that's your question right now, for the governor or the mayor. And I heard both of them being asked about this. Somebody asked the governor what he thought about her fucking haircut.
0: Yeah, he had a pretty good so response.
1: That's I, I, what I have to say about that.
0: I uh, I'm just going to defend journalists. I didn't know you were going to take it there. I didn't. Uh, you did, you left out the part about the journalists when you went on the earlier riff. Uh, but I will now defend the journalists. Uh, first of all, I think those questions are being asked. Those stories are being uh, written and published in the newspapers. I read them all the time. Uh, if I were to be critical of the my my fellow journalists, is that the questions weren't asked before uh the crisis but not everybody is a lefty uh journalist uh like myself uh so i defend them for asking the haircut question i thought it was a legitimate question
1: why what possible defense do you have what possible defense do you have for one of our colleagues asking about the haircut why does anyone give a shit about this
0: oh first of all well those are two separate issues but why do people care about it as opposed to uh why it was asked It was asked because people care about it. People care about the mixed message. People care about, uh, to quote uh, Dennis's uh, uncle Eldon, rules for thee but not for me. And uh, as I pointed out earlier, people would have very critical, very critical of Donald Trump had he so blatantly violated the message. He does it all the time and I'm critical of him all the time. So I feel but
1: no, I actually disagree with you. I think it was asked. I don't think it was asked because people care about this. I think people now quote unquote care about this because it was asked because the TV news media, especially spun this into some kind of story. But this isn't a story. There is no story here. Lori Lightfoot and J.B. Pritzker and all these politicians, they are in contact with people. They're not sitting at home, not talking to anybody. They are constantly in contact with people. The person who gave her a haircut was probably not the only person she's been in contact with outside of her family. They're at these press briefings every day. Like these are politicians. Like look at Boris Johnson. I mean, the guy's an idiot. Like these are people who are, there are so many actors, celebrities, politicians who've come down with this disease because they're constantly in, in contact in close proximity to other people. So like, yeah. Uh, you know, I guess we can have a conversation about whether or not it's necessary for the mayor of Chicago to have a haircut right now. Why does, you know, wh- wh- why, like, wh- why does she need a haircut in the first place? But it's, it's honestly a waste of everybody's time. Actually, if that's what you care about right now, as a person in the world, if you, that's what you really care about, your priorities are totally out of whack.
0: Okay, we will end it now because if I came back we would be spending more time talking about it and it would be even more of a waste of time. So we'll just leave it here. Yeah. I I uh, Yeah,
1: let's leave it. We will never it want there. To talk about this again. We
0: will never talk about it again unless she has another haircut. <laughs> if yeah, she has another I haircut. Talk about it then no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maya's an absolutist. Says, Never talk about Lori Lightfoot's haircut again. All right, Maya. Uh,
1: Listen, if- unless J.B. Pritzker and Indra Selva are giving Lori Lightfoot her haircut, I don't want to hear about it <laughs> ever again.
0: <laughs> Wait, why would you
1: put together? <laughs> they have to be giving her the haircut together.
0: Okay, well. <laughs> uh that's correct okay Bob, Robert Mueller all right uh before you go though let's just do one little business our beloved newspaper the Chicago Reader has a couple of promotions going on now and uh let's just one more time tell folks about them go ahead Maya
1: yeah so the reader still needs all the help that it can get we really need we really need uh, your support. We've been selling our coloring books. I think we're close to sold out of them. If you go to chicagoreader.com slash coloring book, you should be able to see some information about this. You can buy a PDF download. that features um, work from 50 local artists. And for every sale, we split the proceeds between the artists and ourselves. We've got that going on. We've also got um, our regular donation drive that's ongoing always where you can become a member or you can give a one-time donation or you can also become a subscriber to the reader. Now, basically uh, we're offering people the opportunity to have 12 weeks of the reader delivered to their home. And this way, you know, the paper is free, but if you don't want to leave your house, you, you, you can pay to have it delivered. And uh, we really appreciate any, you know, any help that folks can offer. Like I, like Tracy's been saying, we've lost something like 90% of our advertising revenue because most of our advertisers are small local businesses and concert venues and events that are being organized. All of, all that stuff's been canceled. So yeah, it's, um, we really need your support to keep doing this work, um, to keep, for you to keep doing the show, for me to be, to keep reporting on landlords, for Leo to be continuing to report on the music scene and all of this, uh, you know, requires money, obviously, um, and even though the paper is free, this journalism definitely isn't. So, please, well, please, please support the Reader. Go to chicago.reader.com/slash/donate.
0: Well put, and I'm going to get that subscription. I already get a subscription to New York Times, Sun Times, Tribune. I'm going to get the Reader delivered too. I think that I actually think that would be super cool uh, to get the Reader delivered with all the other. And I'm I'm old. Sc- I told Maya this before. Uh, I'm old school. I like my. I like to read the Reader. Reader and uh so anyway maya thank you so much every tuesday maya comes on the show we we have a name now maya makes sense we just invented (laughs) that name (laughs) and don't talk to her about Lori lightfoot's haircut never again maya thank you so much never again never again we'll see you next tuesday take care maya
1: bye guys take care everybody excellent maya